there have been a couple times in my life where I found myself extremely unprepared and it made a big impact that and I learned lessons that I carry with me to this day. The first example is when I was 17. I had taken this scuba certification course and I went off on the final kind of checkout dive weekend. It was over on the coast and it was like an overnighter, basically with no forethought at all. And I got over there and found myself with no money, no gas in the truck, and no cell phone or anything. And I, long story short, had to basically ask strangers for money. And I coasted back into town on fumes. And I had slept in the car and there was a snowstorm. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I remember very clearly when I was coming home thinking, I will never put myself in a situation like this again. Very important lesson for me. The other time is similar but different. This is after I was married. My wife and I were visiting Thailand. It was a really fun and exciting trip for us. And we didn't have any kids. And I had never been anywhere like that before. And she and I were scheduled to do like this excursion. And the morning of, we decided we needed to run to the store and get some supplies, you know, some snacks or drinks or whatever. And so we hopped on our moped and kind of took off to go do that. And through a bad series of decisions in terms of planning and paying attention, we got lost. And really, I got lost because I was driving and she was just kind of sitting behind me, hanging on for dear life. And again, I found myself in the situation with no phone, no money. I think I had a couple bucks for the the you know snacks we we're going to get, but basically nothing. And I didn't know how to get back to our little hotel or even speak to the people. Really scary situation. And I again, I remember that feeling when that 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 morning thinking like, I don't know how I got myself in the situation, but I am not going to forget this. And there have been other times. And in this conversation, this, this is kind of what we're talking about is preparedness and planning ahead. And we're very lucky to have Jake Jordan and his dad, Ken Jordan. Now, you know Ken. He has showed up in dozens of our videos as kind of a friendly, casual observer. And he's usually just admiring the work and kind of hanging out in the background. If you have watched a lot of our videos, you might have seen the video where my dad gives the viewers a tour of Ken's house. He is the ultimate master builder. And not just builder, I would say master craftsman. The things that he builds and the work that he um, has done is it's it's perfect, really. And a few years ago, Ken had a stroke, and so which is actually pretty interesting and inspiring, also because as he's been recovering from this stroke, he's been relearning some of the uh, woodworking skills, and and oddly enough. Although it's not actually odd if you know him, but everything he makes is continues to be perfect. It's maybe a, a little more simple, or at least it was. I think from what I heard now, he's making furniture again, and it's all top level. So, uh, inspirational guy. And he joins us in this conversation, but primarily we're talking to Jake, who has a lot of expertise about preparation and being a prepper. And I hope you enjoy this. Now, for me and my dad, you guys are going to get to know a, a side of us that you, we haven't talked a lot about before, but this is something that we both think about and have thought about in the past. And I think this might be the first time we've talked about it in this way in terms of specifics. 
And I really hope you enjoy it. And most of all, I hope that if you have not gone through some of these thoughts in your head about being prepared and about identifying in your life, you know, the the risks and the things that could happen, whether that's natural disaster or career or who knows what, it's just smart to think through those things beforehand. And this conversation is, is a, was a chance for me to do that. And I have a feeling over the next few days, I'm going to continue to think about this and assess uh, how prepared I am. I do not want to find myself in that position I did when I, I found myself in when I was 17, especially now that I've got a family, I've got little kids, other people who are counting on me to kind of solve some of those major problems, or, or they certainly would be if it happened. So uh, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jake and Ken Jordan. We're lucky to have my dad with us. Let's get into it. Ken's kind of famous in our family. Yeah. I don't know if you realize that, but your name comes up all the time. And uh, and our some portion of our viewers have have seen you around and watched the video tour of your house. So, Jake, first question would be for you. At what point, as a kid, and I've been asked this as well, did you kind of like realize like, oh, my dad's really good at building things. When did you kind of like see that through those eyes for the first time? Uh, I actually never realized that. <laughs> Not as a kid. Oh, oh, oh. Um, not as a kid. Okay. Not as a kid. So we started building the house, oh man, probably started excavating in the mid-1990s. Um, so I was 12. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, we're clearing the land and, you know, they put the foundation in. I remember all of this and I was helping, you know, mm-hmm. the much as I could from right, Air- helping yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, as much as I could in the, you know, my 12, 13, 14, 15 year old self. Sure. Um, but I didn't have any sort of reference point. Yeah. You know, I'd never worked on any construction sites, never seen any other houses being built or so forth. So, you know, when we were building our house, I just thought that's how you build houses. How you do it. That's how you do it, that's, right? Dads you know? can build houses. That's what yeah. they do. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when there was really elaborate and intricate things that were being made, I just thought, well, that's what you put in houses, <laughs> right? Um, and it wasn't probably... Until I was in my 30s, I would say, that uh, I really started to realize the how well my father had built that house. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a funny story about how I learned about your channel. Oh, um, I was living in Alaska at the time. I'd moved up there and I had a friend, um, really good friend of mine. And he, I was over at his house one day and he's into woodworking and such. And he was, uh, he was telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, I, there's this really cool channel on YouTube of these guys in Oregon. And they were, uh, you know, they, they do all sorts of things. They do blacksmithing and they do woodworking and they're building this house. And, and then there's this one guy with a cannon who shoots it off. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. <laughs> I know a guy in Oregon who has a cannon that likes to shoot it. How many guys in Oregon have cannons? And he showed it to me and my name's my friend's Eric. That's his name. And I, I looked at him and I'm like, Eric, I know all these guys. No kidding. Like I've been out there. I've shot that cannon, right? No kidding, yeah. He's like, you did? And wow. I was like, yeah. I was like, this is, I just pointed y'all out, told sure. them all the names and like where y'all lived around here. And he was 
blew his mind. That's right? crazy. <laughs> That's funny. Because uh, I didn't even know Essential Craftsman was a thing until he showed it to me. Interesting. And yeah. so anyway, that, that's actually how I learned about your channel. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So then you saw your dad starting to show up on the video. And I did, right? And yeah. I was like, uh, well, he, sh he showed it to me. Oh, good. A video. And yeah. I'm like, that's my dad in yeah. that video. Yeah, yeah. And that happened to a friend of mine also who, whose dad showed up in a video and the guy didn't expect, didn't realize it. It was Mike Mike Prince, the electrician on uh, my storage thing. Oh yeah, he was watching the video, and then his dad like walked into the frame, and he's like, <laughs> "What?" And we called his dad right then. Uh, and and actually, when you did the video of my father uh, and Scott, you went around and like pointed out all of those things. Uh, it gave me a new perspective, really. Yeah, yeah, as well because. To me, that's... What, what was mundane suddenly became exceptional. Right. You know, I lived in that house yeah. for years. Didn't right? notice it. Didn't, yeah. Forest and trees. Yeah. Didn't notice it. You know, didn't think it was anything special at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I moved out when I was 18. Sure. Right. And, you yeah. know, and it took me 15 years to have an appreciation, mm -hmm. you know. So, for, so I've got two that. things. And the first thing I'm going to say is to sort of soften the potential perception of a blow to what I'm going to say next. <laughs> All right. Okay. Because it was my third visit to your dad's place before I, as a carpenter, flashed on what I was seeing. Okay, mostly I'd just gone into his shop and, okay, cool, nice, you know. But I think I'd even been in the house once and walked out without really drilling down and, wait, wait, what, what did you just see, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, so I, I only tell you that to, to let you know that, oh, a year ago I took two or three couples out there that were up visiting us from Salt Lake and Las Vegas, and one of them is Bill Karen. And he just sold his engineering business. He was partners in an engineering firm. And at one point, they had 165 engineers and draftsmen. It was a real deal down there, you know. And I took him out there, and he really got it. You know, and I'd prepped it, you know, and he'd seen the video. But when he, when he walked out, he said, Scott, that's not a house. That's an intelligence test. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, if at some level you don't flash on what you're looking at, it's like, uh, F, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Um. When I was putting that video together, Ken gave me a bunch of pictures, and I actually have some still. I just found oh, them. I, okay. I, remind me to give them to you, but um, there were pictures of your graduation from West Point. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because West Point is like, there's such a name recognition, but I hardly even know what it is aside from a school or learning institution, whatever. It's like almost like a, um, I don't know, like Valhalla, like this military <laughs> connotation that nobody understands. So, mm -hmm. point question is, what what's West Point like, and what was that like, and ha has your perspective changed from now to then, or fill that all in for me? All right, so it's a quite a long story. Yeah. Um. So I actually was really interested in joining the military all growing up. Um. I you know I'm a little kid. I like to play army. You know, yeah. and and this guy would buy me surplus army gear. You know, sure. and you know me and my brother would run around and you know be boys and do that kind of thing. Um. So when it got time for me to graduate high school and figure out what I was going to do with my life, uh, you know, the military still had that appeal to me. And this was in 2001. Uh, so I graduated high school in 2002. And so around 2001 time frame, I was like, OK, I'm a senior. Got to figure out what's going on. You know, I'm going to graduate and then he's kicking me out. Right. Sure, you know, sure. I got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so we. Uh, he had always told me that if I wanted to join the military, I needed to go to the academy, uh -huh. one of the academies. Yeah. Like, and there's a bunch of them, right? So there's West Point and the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy and the Merchant Marine Academy and the Coast Guard Academy. What, what even is, what does that mean? So the, what is the academy? So the academy is the main way that the uh, military branches 
uh, grow their officers. Okay. So there's, you can either go to one of the academies where you, it's like a college where you do college work. Uh um, But there's a whole bunch of military training that goes along with it. And once you graduate, you get commissioned as an officer uh-huh. in whatever branch of the military that you're in. So you enter the military from the first moment, like through the academy yes. on like a, that track, as opposed to a regular enlistment or something. Mm-hmm. But there's an intense qualification process to do that. There is. They an, don't just take every draftee they and don't. run them through the academy. <laughs> they don't. So the qualifications are the first thing you have to do is you have to get a nomination. And you can either be nominated by your congressman or either one of your senators or you can actually appeal to the vice president or the president as well for a nomination to the academy. If you don't get a nomination, you cannot get in. doesn't huh. matter how qualified you are. You have to have a nomination. Uh, and then the other thing is there's just a high bar for entry. So even if you get a nomination, you still have to have high test scores, be very active in sports. Mm-hmm. Um extracurricular activities and it's not like you can just be on the football team and apply and get in you Mm. have to do all sorts of stuff the application that i had to fill out was probably gosh i don't know 16 pages long Mm -hmm. and it just listed have you ever done this 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 um and you know you fill that out and you send it in with a whole bunch of essays and pictures of the things that you've done and Hopefully they send you an acceptance letter back. So is West Point like the Army's Academy? Yes. Or, or oh, that's the Army's Academy. There's only one. Each branch has their, their own. They don't just have one. Got so it. So West Point is the Military Academy for the Army. The Naval Academy is for the Navy. At, an, uh, at Annapolis. At Annapolis. Uh, oh. It's also for the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, you can either be, go into the Navy or the Marine Corps from there. Uh, the Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado. Huh. And the Merchant Marine Academy... It is somewhere on the East Coast. Not quite sure. Yeah, uh, huh. Connecticut or something. Yeah, something like that. And uh, and yeah, Coast Guard Academy and then the Merchant Marine Academy, um, which is actually really interesting. If you go to the Merchant Marine Academy, uh, you know these are the offices that are on like shipping vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can actually commission into any military branch from the Merchant Marine Academy. Really? I had a lieutenant that I worked with in the Army, and she went to the Merchant Marine Academy. And she was like, yeah, I didn't want to tool around on ships. So I decided to come into the Army. No kidding. And they were like, wow. off you go. Yeah. <laughs> I was wow. like, okay. I, so I had no idea that the Merchant Marine even had a, an academy yep. equivalent to the other. Huh. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So are you all out of the military at this point? I am. So I spent nine years active duty. Huh. Uh, I got commissioned in 2006 and I got out in 2015. Wow. Uh, I was stationed in Germany. It was my first duty station. Uh, I spent three and a half years there. Did a tour in Afghanistan for 15 months huh. um, during that time. Came back, got stationed at uh, Fort Richardson in Alaska outside of Anchorage and stayed there four and a half years. And then I decided that that was enough army for me. Wow. And I got out. Wow. <laughs> well, thanks for your service, oh, Jake. You're very welcome. Uh, you know, I everybody says that to me. And, you know, it sounds kind of trite to say you're welcome. But right. I, I am. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud of what my soldiers did who worked uh-huh. under me. Um, and everything that happened, I can look back on it. And uh, I, though not everything was great, nothing ever is. No. Um, there's nothing I'd change because, you know, mm. the... The struggles you go through and the experiences are what make you who you are. Bingo. I just finished a book by Daniel Sherson, who was a history teacher at West Point. And um, I, I'm sure there's a zillion of them, but mm-hmm. that's why I was thinking about it because he was talking about teaching history there. And there's probably a lot of interesting people <laughs> coming through there. I'm sure it's not quite as like cookie cutter as like some civilians might think about military mm-hmm. types and officers. There's probably a, some pretty interesting 
What, what oh. I usually tell people about West Point um, and what actually sets it apart from uh, a lot of the other institutions you can go to is that they have the ability to bring in kind of the best of the best and the movers and the shakers in our world hmm. to come in and speak with us and share insights and, oh, I see. and so forth. Uh, I'll give you an example. So I had to take a constitutional law class my senior year at West Point. And uh, we had a evening lecture from a uh, judge who was going to come and talk to us. And, you know, in most places, you'd get some local judge to come in. Uh, they got Antonin Scalia oh, to come oh, in. Uh, no kidding. That's and, a judge. Yeah. You know, and speak to us. Yeah. Um, you know, and he got up on stage and we all sat in there and a lot of people fell asleep, you know, because sure. it was in the evening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but he talked for about an hour and then he was like, hey, anyone who wants to talk to me, come on up and I'll answer your questions. Right. You know what? Uh, who gets the opportunity as a 21-year-old senior in college mm -hmm. to do a one-on-one -on -one with a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. just because you're taking a constitutional law class. Yeah, um, interesting. You know, we had, uh, have you seen the um, HBO show Band of Brothers? I'm aware of it, but I've not I seen watched it. half of it or maybe all of it. It was a long time ago, but yeah. So they had the actual living guys who oh. they made that about come oh, and talk to us. Oh, really? Right. You know, and we got to speak with them and ask them about their time in World War II and so forth and, you know, huh. get books signed. Um, have you seen uh, We Were Soldiers? I don't think I With Hal Moore. That. So oh, you're no, talking no. to a cultural illiterate oh, okay. here. Okay. <laughs> Culturally illiterate. <laughs> Um, so they, they made a movie about they, it. Okay. they made a movie about the uh, the Idrang Valley and the massacre there in the beginning of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hal Moore was the battalion commander mm -hmm. who got his who had the uh, guys uh, in this massacre, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, they had him come and talk to us, right? Wow. And uh, you know, that? so the people that they're making movies about are the pe actual people that they come and have wow. speak with us. And Interesting. We, and they always give us the time to do like one-on-one -on -one with them afterwards um, so that we can ask questions and, and like I said, get insights. Yeah, that's um, a pivotal experience for a young man. It is. Huh. And that that is really the difference in a lot of ways that I see is that you are, you are exposed to things at a very young age that people just don't have the opportunity um, of being exposed to a lot of oh, times. Interesting. Uh, and, and I think that's very formational. You bet. You see things that yeah. other people don't see. At that age, particularly. Right. At that age. Yeah. And on top of that, you have to do a bunch of military training and they, you know, throw you in the mud and, yeah. you know, drop drop so, you out of helicopters. So and, uh, my my cousin, Mike Wadsworth, um, mm -hmm. grew up here three years older than I am. I, I idolized Mike, you know, all through my childhood. He was bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. He just was. And he got an appointment to Annapolis. And he made it through his plebe year and about into the next year. And he just decided... This is not for me, mm -hmm. you know, and he just took a, another route. And, you know, a lot of guys do because it's a tough process and there's a, a psychology associated with that. And he just, he found a different place in his head and heart and he ended up an architect living in Carmel. And I think he was, had a leadership role in the California Architectural Association. I mean, he just went, you know, down that track. But I remember that he, he, uh, Senator Mark Hatfield from Oregon, um, Mike, sent him the letters and said, would you recommend me? Was it recommend? What was the word? Nominate. Nominate. Would you? And, you know, the senator's office reviewed his application, his paperwork, and then sent, sent the nomination off, and he went to Annapolis. We have been a Navy family, and so everybody— <laughs> I forgive you. Yeah, I know, but, but I'll tell you what, it caused some disruption when Mike came home, okay, when he said, uh, that's not for me, you know, it, it, was, a, it was an adjustment because his dad served in World War II on submarines and you know, yada, yada, but— you know, interesting you bring that up. There uh, is not well known, but over 100 people quit on the first day. 
when they get there. Uh, and what I tell people, everyone's like, what? Why would, why would over 100 people quit? And what it is, is there is immense pressure yeah. on people to go to one of the academies. Mm. And they don't want to tell their families no. Right. So they're like, I'll give it a try yeah. mm. with the complete intention of quitting. Going so on. they show up the first day, run through a couple things. They're like, not for me. Satisfied my parents, you know, mm. desire for me to come here, right? Give it a try. And we send them home. Interesting. Um, mm. The other thing was that I had a very good friend when I was at the academy who uh, did the exact same thing, was there for about a year and three quarters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can quit up to two years mm-hmm. and not owe anything back. They just say, okay, mm-hmm. we understand it's not for you. Off you go. Have a good have a good life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I had I had a really good friend who came to me yeah, at the end of our sophomore year and wanted my input because he's like, I, I don't think this is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, if you don't think this is for you, don't do it. Amen. Right. Because you got two more years here and then five years in the army. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't do something you don't want to do for mm-hmm. seven yeah. more years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and thankfully, he he decided to. Uh, you know, hang up his hat and go home. Uh, and I actually thought that took a lot of courage. I know it did for my cousin. Mm-hmm. That's the closest I've been to that. And Mike, it was a good choice for Mike, and he's had a stellar ride, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Mike's been great. But at the time, it had to have been difficult for him and everyone associated with him. And that whole thing is a, a fraught yeah. passage, you know, with families and expectations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Huh. Wow, that's cool. Um, <clears throat> Ken, before we move away from the, the conversation about your house, two things. Do you like having people come and tour the house and what's it like having that kind of been made well, one, public one, one at a time okay um yeah i i uh, yes and what about having people oh maybe a better question my second question um you didn't you haven't built another house like that that was the first house to that extent you built did you go into it with any amount of like uh not even not doubt, but did you know what you were going to be up against building that? Or were you kind of licking your chops and knew that this was, you know, your calling was to build this thing? Great or question. or was Great. it was it at the time just kind of Wednesday and this is what you did? No, uh, I was I was married. I got got married and um, we we decided to build the house and we had the arguments over what kind of house and once we went to see green and green she she said yeah that that, that that's a good house and uh so we when we came home we were down visiting my father and we came home and uh started started working on it just got started let, let, let me let me follow up on your question so you had done pretty much garden variety carpenter work I mean, you, you'd framed houses, and you were part of a part of a house building company, and you had inspected. Yeah. You'd been interested in woodworking. Did you have a reasonable picture of how much extra labor was going to be in the project you were taking on, or did it dawn on you as you finally, when you got done with those plans, had you wrapped your head around how much additional effort it was going to take to create that kind of a house? I was, I was intent on building a house that pleased my wife. Mm-hmm. And so um, it didn't matter. Yeah, gonna make it happen. Wow, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. 
All right. Well, wait, wait. Um, <laughs> and have you done that? And have you done that? Did you build a house that pleased your wife? Yeah. Is she pleased with yeah, that? Yeah, she's very, uh, very pleased. Home run. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that is cool. All right. Well, um, let's talk about um, prepping. Simply is shorthand for being prepared. And I can't help but feel like prepping has almost turned into a bit of a slur. You know what I mean? Like prepper is almost like diminishes people as being like loons. I just don't like that. It's, it seems more honest just be like being prepared but what first of all in terms of the terminology and that jake do you have any insight on that uh yeah i actually uh avoided using the term prepper for many years even after i started getting into the the space uh doing it and talking to people about it simply because because of that reason because of that reason i knew it would turn people off um just right out the gate and uh you know if you there's all sorts of TV shows that yeah. you know, they made like on Discovery Channel. They got like this doomsday prepper show where it's like people living in bunkers, you yeah. know, tinfoil hats so the government doesn't beam ideas into your head. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, that is the exposure that most people have yeah. to this kind of idea of being prepared. Um, and obviously people don't want to be associated with that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if there is a concerted effort to make people not be prepared. Um but uh, or if it's just good ratings, you know, yeah. to show the uh, most extreme uh, yeah. people out there. Um, but from what I've seen uh, now, kind of being in the preparedness world for going on seven, eight years, that uh, most people are just regular run of the mill people that look mm-hmm. around the world and say, man, things are getting dicey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might need to do something more than I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um and, and those are the kind of people that I try to link up with and, and help. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I, I now use that term um, prepper uh, yeah. because I think the people who are waking up to some of the problems we're having yeah. uh, are understand that preppers are the people who've been doing it for a while yeah. and kind of the subject matter experts and yeah. they should talk to them about getting ready. I, yeah. Man, that when COVID first hit in March of last year and toilet paper shortage like happened instantly. I don't, I'm not especially prepared or maybe more than average, but still I remember feeling, and I even had friends like one in particular who called me like, I need to buy a gun. Well, how do I buy a gun? <laughs> and it was the first time he had ever had any thought like that. And there were, there was more, uh, I don't know, memes, I guess on this mm-hmm. topic of the preppers were right, this and that. And, um, so anyways, <laughs> that, that was one example of, you know, certainly just even with toilet paper of people like I, I was at a store in Washington that Christmas and there was a lady literally running around the aisles freaking out because she had no toilet paper mm-hmm. and she was like swearing and making a scene because she's like, really? how am I supposed to get toilet paper? There's no, yeah. and I was just like, wow, that would suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I probably would have given her some if she, if she was here, but like I said, we were out of town, but point is aside from that and maybe speak to that, but. Let's talk about the times when being prepared has, has helped already, separate from the big one. You know, I, I have an interesting story about that, too. I had uh, I'm actually in a doctor of pharmacy program right now. I'm going to be graduating in April, uh, finishing up my four years and getting my degree. Mm. Um, but when the pandemic first hit, I was still in my second year. Um, and we're sitting in a classroom, you know, full of pharmacy students. And, uh, you know, we get to know each other pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting together there every day. Band of brothers, right? Oh, yeah. You know, having to learn things that you're like, this is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm having been kind of this prepper mindset for a while. Uh, I was watching what was going on in China, you know, in the early parts of 2020, um, you know, January, February and so on. 
Um, and I saw what was going to happen. Mm. Um, you know, when the Chinese are welding people into their mm-hmm. apartment buildings mm-hmm. to try to stop the spread of this disease, I was like, this is going to be everywhere mm-hmm. eventually, like just a matter of time. Um, so I actually, you know, we're friends in class. I actually told my classmates, I was like, hey, listen, like this is a big deal. I know nobody's talking about this yet or whatnot, but you need to go out uh, and you need to buy. I don't know what's going to happen, right? It could be mild. It could be crazy, right? Because nobody knew at that point, right? Um, you know, I, I mentioned to them that if this disease is as bad as some people think it is, if the people who work at the power plant all get sick and nobody knows how to run the power plant, guess mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. we're not gonna have power mm-hmm. um you know what are you going to do in alaska in, in alaska. the middle of winter yeah uh if there's no electricity right how are you gonna eat your house how are you gonna eat your food you know all that kind of stuff you know so i said you know think through these things right but at a very minimum just go buy some food mm-hmm. right for s- several weeks a month water and yep. you know some way to keep your house warm and buy toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> and uh I had a few of the, the other students go out and do this, and I had a few of them laugh at me. Sure. Um, fast forward to, let's see, June uh-huh. of this year. I was working with one of those students. Of now, this year. Uh, so a yeah. year and three months after a year you and talked three to him. months after you talked to him. Right. And now we've been through the pandemic and seen mm-hmm. what's happened. And I actually had one of them come back to me, and she said, Jake, when you told us that in class, I thought you were crazy. Mm-hmm. Completely crazy. Tin, then, tinfoil hat. Yeah. And then she said, and then everything you told us came true. Hmm. She's like, and I want to apologize. Wow. For thinking that about you. Okay. Uh, and she has actually contacted me quite a few times with questions about things she's hmm. seen in the news and, you know, what we should do about certain things nice. um, happening in our country. Um, so there's always going to be people who look at prepping and think, these guys are nuts, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you never know who's going to come around and be like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I wasn't here, but the, the snowstorm, we've mentioned it several times on the channel. I was just talking to my neighbor about it because um, it was such an experience. He had no power for four days. Side had no power for 19 days. Um, what was that like, Dad? And I guess, Ken, you were here too, but that was, a, that was another moment <laughs> Not as serious as a pandemic, but very serious if your power was out it, for 19 days. It, maybe it <laughs> maybe more serious than, yeah. than that. It, it started out just with a pounding rain, a couple, three days of pounding rain. And then without any weather forecast at all of snow, wow, here's this slushy snow falling right on the heels of the rain. And the slushy snow gradually kind of got tighter and tighter, still wet and heavy and came down. And by that night, you know, we had some snow, wet, heavy snow on soaked up earth. And I could just step out of my door. And we didn't have it too bad east of Roseburg. It was over here and just west of here that it just really got torn up. But you could just hear branches and trees all over, all night, going down. And it was the, the trees falling from the heavy mm-hmm. snow on the wet ground that that uh, shut off the power to most of this part of the state. And so a couple days later, I, I had generators and we did fine. Although, let me just digress and say... Kelly and I had moved out to dad's place by then. I own that place now. but So we had dad, 86 um, at that time, and fragile. We had um, 
Clayton and Courtney, my youngest son and daughter, had re- daughter-in-law, had recently moved back from Utah and had two little kids living in the basement. And then Kelly and I were there. So there was a f- nine-month, a nine-month-old, and an eighty-four-year-old, and me. And I thought, okay, this is a weight of responsibility that I hadn't really anticipated exactly what that would feel like to mm-hmm. keep them viable. So anyhow, once our power was back on, that was under control. We took a little. Uh, what do you call them when you drive around and look at other people's misfortune? I'm not sure what you would call it. A joyride. A joyride. Okay. <laughs> we drove out through Melrose, and there were. I went went by one little A-frame that was probably a rental, and the house was dark, and there were two people sitting out in the driveway in a tramped down area in about 16 or 18 inches of snow around a campfire outside of their house in the middle of the day, mm. and I thought, ouch, ouch. And the power lines were down anyway. It was mm-hmm. it was alarming and uh, energizing, and uh, it's a lesson that I have not entirely forgotten yet. Yeah, those uh, floods in Houston a couple of years ago also was another reminder of how. Uh, oh, and the freeze in Dallas, or that yeah. cold where that cold snap happened, and like fifty people froze to death in the middle of Dallas or wherever mm-hmm. it was, where these um these things happen, and gosh, just like. We only can predict weather five days out or whatever yeah. it is anyways. And so you just don't know until it's too late, basically. It was actually a windstorm that knocked out my power that got me into prepping to begin okay. with. Okay, uh, I had just moved to Alaska and I had gotten married. And so this was, I believe, September of 2012. Um, and I was living in Anchorage. And there is... The weather in Anchorage is pretty mild mm-hmm. to be honest a lot of people think alaska and they think you know polar bears and you know snowstorms and this kind yeah. of thing but anchorage is on the cook inlet uh the ocean water moderates the weather it doesn't get super cold it doesn't get super hot um we do get heavy winds though every once in a while mm-hmm. um but they typically stay up on a higher elevation in town uh anchorage the main part of the city is down on kind of a flat area mm-hmm. and then it goes up the Chugach mountains the mountains um and the you know people with the million dollar mansions live up there because mm-hmm. they get the view of, got the view right? got the exclusivity <laughs> exactly uh and so it's very common for up there where those people live for them to get 60 70 80 mile an hour winds wow. um wow and they know that though so they build they for build it. for it and all the trees are used to it Sure. They don't fall down. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Because it happens on a regular basis. They grow that way. They grow that way. Uh, Well, it just so happened that this time in September, uh, those 80 mile an hour winds decided to come down into the main part of Anchorage. Okay, then. And just trees knocked down all over town. Um, I don't know if there was a single spot of the city that didn't lose power at some point. Mm. Um, And it just so happened that I had a big cottonwood tree in my backyard. And one of the big branches of this cottonwood tree was directly over the power line that went to the transformer that mm. fed my block electricity. Okay. And in the middle of the night, probably we're sitting there, me and my wife, and you know the wind's blowing just so hard, we're, we're awake. It's probably 11 o'clock at night. We're looking out our window, and this limb gets ripped off that tree. And, and this limb's probably you know, 15, 16 inches across, right? Mm-hmm. And it just hits those wires and rips them out of that transformer and a shower of sparks later. Wow. We don't have any electricity. Black. And what time of the year was this? This was September. Okay. So in Anchorage in September, 
the temperatures range between like the 40s into the 50s. Mm -hmm. um, it's still not a really cold time yet. Once you get into October is when it really starts to freeze on a regular basis. Mm. Um, but 40 degrees in your house is pretty mm -hmm. chilly. Yes, it is. And um, I just... It, and and the, the big problem was is that obviously the power company is going to restore power to the most houses that they can at mm -hmm. one time, mm -hmm. right? And it turned out that this transformer only fed power to my block. Oh, <laughs> so we were the absolute last mm. on the list to mm. get this thing fixed. Uh, so it was about three days wow. that we didn't have any electricity. Wow. And at about day two, when I'm sitting in my house in a jacket mm -hmm. eating crackers because uh, we can't cook anything <laughs> sure. right and um you know i have to call up my friend so that i can go take a shower because mm -hmm. we haven't bathed in a few days because um, he got power back sooner i just thought to myself man if this had happened in december mm. Yeah. Like, I, I don't even know how we'd stay warm. 40 above, 40 below. Yeah. That's a split. Um, you know, so I, 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 you know, and, and it was that realization, right? Yeah. It, it was that light bulb moment where all of a sudden I said, man, I'm a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. You know, something that I didn't have any idea about, never thought about. And I mean, it could have killed me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. And that, that was the epiphany moment. So, so prepping. Mm -hmm. at, at its foundation is about self-reliance. Absolutely. It is self-reliance. And it's so interesting that self-reliance today is instantly labeled a political term. Mm -hmm. And that, sorry, is nonsense. Self-reliance is a function of being a responsible human. It's a function of not be, only being able to look after your own welfare, but be able to look at the, after the welfare of the people around you. That's part of self-reliance. And if they're trying for a little self-reliance, then everybody can pool whatever it is that they put together with their self-reliance instinct. Man, life is just better. And that, that I think, is not only the, the redeeming character, characteristic of preparing, but it is, in fact, what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. it's, it's being self-reliant. It is. And uh, I would say, sadly, that our culture, uh, to a large degree, doesn't like that idea. I know it. Um, Staggering. And and I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it's it's entirely a political thing. Uh, right. I believe it does have politics to do with it to some degree. Uh, but I think it's it's also just kind of a human nature thing, right? Uh -huh. You know, is it easier for you to do nothing and rely on other people, or you know, do all of this work to be yeah. ready if something happens, yeah. right? Mm. And most people don't like hard work. We, we put up a video. What did we call that? Uh, take re Adults take responsibility. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And the theme was self-reliance. Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming response is positive. But you can just tell that it touched a raw nerve for some people and they thought that it was somehow inappropriate to talk in a public forum about self-reliance. That is so foreign to me. Mm -hmm. So foreign. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I can't process that. Well, it, it is for me, too. And uh, I think it has largely to do with how I grew up uh, mm -hmm. being in the military. Um, you know, like the first thing they teach you in the military is you got to be ready, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was really good. And I, and I think one of the reasons why prepping is something that I kind of moved into um, and I, I feel I moved into it fairly easily is because in the military, you know, that that's like your whole job as an officer is like, mm. get your guys ready. Prep. Yeah. Prep to go out and do their mission. Um, you know, and if, and if you are ready, if you're trained and your equipment's good, 
you know, that's 90% of accomplishing the mission, right? Then uh-huh. you just got to go out and do it. Yeah. But if you're not trained and your equipment's not any good or ready to go, doesn't matter how you execute, you're going to fail. Right? So that's construction too. Yeah. I mean, construction is about being prepared. If you're not prepared, you're not going to make any money on that job or you're not going to keep that job. My, my truck, my funny looking old truck with the crane on the back is all about mobile self-reliance as a small contractor. That mm-hmm. is entirely the definition of that truck. And it's so interesting to me, the people whose lives have been so different that they don't see the value of that or not only don't see the value, but see something to condemn. Odd. Well, I, I think it has something to do with uh, normalcy bias. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with normalcy bias? I'm familiar with confirmation bias. Okay. Yeah, normalcy bias. Yes, normalcy yes. Bias. the way things are is the way they will always the, be. I want to believe they will always be like this. They will always be this way. Yes. Right? And it usually takes some sort of crazy event, like I spoke of with me, yeah. to break people out of that uh, that mindset. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that if it had been a lesser... To a lesser degree of a natural disaster, right? Mm-hmm. My power wasn't out for very long, you know, or or so forth. It might not have triggered that um, because I've been like, oh, power company's got this under control, right? I don't need to worry. Yeah, I got yeah. a phone call so it'll be on in six hours. Yeah, six hours. Fun. Oh, Light I, a candle. Yeah, I can hang out for six hours. That's fine, right? Uh, three days, on the other hand, uh, that just yeah. is life disrupting, and uh, that's really, you know, it was it was that, like I said, that epiphany that man, I'm. You know, what else can happen around here? And and that's when I really sat down and did what I like to call a risk assessment, right? Where I assess the risks of where I lived and how I lived my life um, mm-hmm. to what could happen where I was. And Alaska is a crazy place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I live in Anchorage and uh, there are four volcanoes within, you know, 200 miles <laughs> of us uh, that when they erupt, they actually shut down the airport. Wow. You can't fly planes in and out anymore. Um, depending on which way the wind blows, sure. Um, you know they uh, they give us they uh, there's an air force base um, there at Fort Richardson. It's Elmendorf Air Force Base in uh, Richardson, Fort Richardson, right there north of Anchorage. And you know they have a uh, plan for when these volcanoes erupt, right? Because they have to get those jets back in the air. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're up there near Russia, and right, and there's all this mm-hmm. crazy stuff going on up there, right? and they're always flying those planes over there. And, uh, well, you can't launch a jet if there's going to an- suck ash into those motors, oh, man. And you ruin, uh, engines. Yeah. If you get volcanic ash and it just turns to glass in that heat, uh, mm-hmm. and it, they just gum up and they stop. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they get everybody out there and they got bulldozers and front end loaders and people's shovels mm-hmm. getting that ash off that runway. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just one of the dangers where I live. Another danger, earthquakes, yeah. uh, two, Two years ago? No, six. No, three years ago now, almost. Exactly three years ago. Um, we had that 7.1 earthquake uh-huh. in Anchorage. And that was exciting. Okay. I'll tell you. I was sitting in class and it started to shake. And we all have done earthquake drills. We live in an earthquake area. And we got under our desks and it started to shake harder and harder and harder. And it kept going. And at about 20 seconds in... Jeez. And I don't know if you've ever been in many earthquakes, but 20 seconds in an earthquake yeah. is a long time. Yeah. And it was just getting harder. I thought to myself, oh, man, this could be the big one they've been talking about. Right. Yeah. And then it shook for another 25 seconds oh, wow. <laughs> after that. Um, so that's, a, that's on the subduction zone up there. Yeah. That's a subduction quake. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the Cascadia fault line up there? You know, I don't, Not I don't fault know. Not fault line, but it's Cascadia event zone. 
I don't know. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Um, I mean, we're on the, we're you on know, the right there on the Pacific plate, right? Yeah. All those volcanoes are right along it's that the same, thing. yeah. Uh, mm. And yeah, and I, you know, thankfully it stopped, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, you know, they evacuated all of the buildings downtown. Um, you know, they sent everybody home. Uh, there was uh, parts of the highway that washed, just basically just sloughed off down hills. Mm. Um, you know, the bridges. Uh, they wouldn't let anyone drive over any of the bridges because they all had to be checked to make sure that they were still structurally sound. That plugged things up, didn't it? Oh, man, everything just stopped. Um, I was actually concerned that the water was going to go out, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there was breaks in water lines everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they luckily did not. But first thing I did when I got home was I went and I filled my bathtub full of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you're far enough north. Have, have you acquainted yourself with the with the forecasts and the the doomsday sort of scenarios of when it happens off the Oregon, Washington, Northern Oregon coast. I'm familiar with them. Okay. So the, the Cascadia event mm-hmm. earthquake, when it comes and we're about 60 years overdue on the repeatable cycle, okay. which is a fascinating story. We ought to get somebody on here to talk about that, how that, that geologic detective story went to figure that out. Mm-hmm. But when it happens, it, there's a potential of up to like a 17 foot horizontal relocation and a nine foot vertical relocation okay um and the the geologic record shows tsunamis going 17 miles up the tributaries Mm. um but the takeaway from this is that the oregon coast is going to be completely isolated for a long time all of the bridges across the the bays and fjords and estuaries will be down or impassable and most of the bridges across the canyons and creeks and stuff going inland are going to be isolated and the docks will all be washed away and there are no landing strips over there big enough to take care of anything it'll be the navy and seaplanes that'll having to be keep those people alive without municipal water or sewer or hospitals or electricities it'll be like galveston off in the in the gulf you know the 1910 galveston hurricane that washed that little mm. islet away that town never recovered i've been down there and you can just see you can see the depression that just settled on that island after mother nature wiped it out and it's going to be that way on the pacific northwest coast they say and uh so anyway they, they also say that i-5 thankfully uh, just right over the hill it's kind of <laughs> the dividing line beyond which everything will be rosy right mm. so i'm on the right side of it and yeah, you're on the wrong side <laughs> yeah yeah well we uh are you familiar with the 1964 Good Friday earthquake in Anchorage? Yeah, the, like the biggest one in the North American right. continent the, on record. The 9.1. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, they have pictures all over town of, you know, d- d- yeah, you know, yeah. just streets downtown, you know, dropping 10 feet. Yeah. Right. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. And uh, all of the city or the towns, I should say, on the southern Oregon coast all got washed out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Kodiak and uh, Homer, uh, you know, all of those down there. Um, I actually have a cabin in Cook Inlet. And uh, one of the first things I asked everybody before I built on this, because it's on an island, uh-huh. uh, right on the beach, was, hey, during that earthquake, what how happened? high did the water get here? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and uh, my wife's grandfather has actually been fishing there since uh, 1945 or six. Oh, wow. uh, so he, he was not on the island when the earthquake happened. He was in Palmer. Um, but he came down there that next summer to fish and he said, Oh, not much. Water came up a little and, uh, everything was fine. And I was like, perfect. <laughs> Biggest earthquake on record. Build here. We're, we'll be all right. <laughs> wow. Um, Sometimes I feel like in small towns and living in the country, like we do, um, 
prepping's much more natural because it's like, oh, I guess I need to plant a garden and yep. you I go to my acre and do it, or I guess I need to have a tractor. I'll, but in the city, man, hard. What, what, so, so that's the question. What, what's like the low hanging fruit or the people who are, who don't have like the luxury of maybe planting a garden and being like really self-reliant? What, what do you tell people who are in an apartment complex or in, you know, urban and urban in Columbus, Ohio, and kind of don't have a, as many options, at least as country folk? Well, this is kind of an area of contention because uh, as I said before, whenever someone asks me about, hey, what should I do? Yeah. Right. I get these questions a lot, right? Hey, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And I say, well, what you do is going to be very specific for you. Um, you know, you need to do your risk assessment just the way I did and say, hey, what are the dangers to me? Mm. Um, and my belief is that in any sort of, you know, extended protracted disaster, um, cities are going to not be a place that anybody wants to be. Mm. Um, the, as we've seen with the issues with supply chains breaking down, um, that kind of thing, our cities run on energy and being fed materials from the heartland Mm -hmm. and, or the uh, ports or the ports. Right. And, in any sort of situation where those break down, um, cities are going to become unlivable. Mm. Now, if you're just talking about, hey, how do I prep for, say, you know, the power goes out, you know, because they blew one of the main transformer stations in my town, right, yeah. or my city, uh, you know, I'm going to be out of power for a few days. Yeah, you can prepare for that, right? Um, you know, but if you're saying, hey, supply chains have broken down and we're not getting anything for the next six weeks. Mm. I just tell people you need to get out of the city immediately. Okay. So your plan needs to include like somewhere to go, (laughs) somewhere to go. Um, because things devolve very quickly when that many people are around. Uh, if you look at the uh, power outages, those massive power outages in New York city, I believe in the 1970s or eighties, um, you know, the power's out for an extended period of time and the place just explodes. Mm. Um, you know, massive violence, uh, criminality, mm-hmm. you know, people acting crazy. Um, you don't want to be anywhere near that yeah. when that occurs. Yeah, it's um, funny because it is violence and criminality. And it's also people who's like kids are starving. Yes. yes. Who are like, that's right. That's right. right. I need to get some food for my kids. That's right. Now. Right. I, yeah. I actually, I actually talked to people about that. I asked the question I asked them is how long do your kids have to cry because they're hungry before you will do anything that's right. to yeah. stop it? So I love Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. I love it. And Jean Valjean, was incarcerated for 19 years for breaking a window pane and stealing a loaf of bread because his sister's children were hungry. Anybody would do that. Right. Right. And and I don't I don't blame them. No. Right. But I do understand that that's what's going to occur. Yeah. Um and if you if you have a rosy picture of humanity um where you think everybody's going to come together and just help everyone and it's all going to be great. Right. I just don't think you understand human nature. Mm. Um, and, you know, that that may be the case in some areas of lower population density. Um, you know, if you live in the country and, you know, big acreage and neighbors are further apart and there's more self-reliance out there, uh, I think it's very important actually to build a community mm-hmm. um, with that, uh, with your neighbors and other people around you. Um, so if there is a disaster or something happens that you all can help one another, um, but, uh, everybody is going to become more and more 
looking towards themselves and their own family when there's less man. and less. But you know, to that, this is this is something that's a, that's kind of a theme of mine that that being prepared is is a moral imperative, mm. especially if you have children. Okay, but the best preparation there is is to is to generate and be part of some kind of a community, even if it's just two or three neighbors, people that you know that you can trust, because uh, and and so. I don't mean to devolve into more sort of a. Uh, here, here's what I tell people: that everybody, no matter how fit, no matter how tough, no matter how prepared you are, with responsibilities for dependents or friends or neighbors or in your neighborhood, is vulnerable to one well-placed thirty-six round. Right. But a group of two or three or four or five or ten or fifteen like-minded souls, all of a sudden, you have at least some short-term resilience, and that from my worldview is the best prep, the first best preparation, particularly if they all have made some sort of uh, initial moves towards their own self-reliance. Now, now that you begin to have something. Yes. The, the idea of being a lone wolf, Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of movies about it. Um, it, it, it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy. It's a complete fantasy. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you have three people, you will always be able to take one person out That's unless right. you are just, completely incompetent yes. uh, but most people are not just completely incompetent so yeah. three guys get together and you will be able to take one person out every time every time um so yes community is one of the very first things that you need to be working on to be prepared for anything to happen in your mm -hmm. life um you know not not just disasters you know we're talking disasters here and that kind of stuff but uh i mean you know someone in your family getting sick bingo right? long-term unemployment due to injury right Man, any of those things are part of the disaster scenario that are part, it's part of being alive. I, I, I personally uh, believe that um, most a real good place to start building community is within, uh, if you're religious, mm -hmm. uh, within your religious community. Yeah. Um, you know, you go to church or synagogue or wherever you want to go. Um, you know, there's, you, you've already have shared beliefs with, yep. with people and uh, it's easy because you're already meeting together on a regular mm -hmm. basis to kind of have an offshoot of that. Um, mm, with yep. people who are uh, of like mind as you, yep. um, you know, it's no guarantee that think people aren't going to think you're crazy. That's right. But uh, it's it's much more likely that you'll find somebody than just randomly on the street. That is for mm -hmm. sure. You know, um, Grant Seavey. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're about to come out with a video which mm -hmm. will be interesting and speaks directly to this. There's, um, we are aware of a of a framing company in Idaho that consists of six brothers. Okay, and one of them just got badly hurt. Mm -hmm. Now, if I if I at that age would have been badly hurt without six brothers, self-employed. It, it would have, well, it, it would have been a, a blow I would have never, and my family would have never recovered from when I was that age. But this young guy's got five brothers in the same business. Bam! And, you know, they, they just, they've got a fence around him. Now, his problems are still his problems, but it just, mm -hmm. it, it, that'll be an interesting thing for those who... Um, listen to this podcast either before or after the other one to kind of make that connection about the power of family, fraternity, church, you know, these, these shared interests. When you identify people, you know, you can trust. Wow. What an asset. Well, that, that was the original social safety net. There you go. Right. That's right. Uh, you know, before we, um, you know, farm this out to the government yes. to take care of people down on their luck, uh, it was mm. family, friends and community that did it. Yeah. Um, that's right. You know, and that's when communities thought, uh, that there was something wrong if you weren't taking care of the people. That's in right. Community, that it was right? a defect within me right. if I'm not able to do something for for you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, if your neighbor's kids are hungry, 
it's your responsibility to go over there and help them take care of their kids, right? Mm. Feed them, right? Yeah. Because, you know, someone was hurt or, you know, they're sick or, or something yeah. along those lines. Uh, and, and I think, I think in a lot of ways, there's areas of the country that are moving back towards that because we've just seen the inability of, you know, our government to do the things that they say that they're going to do mm -hmm. um, in a lot of areas. In and, the face of these ginormous problems. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's shaken a lot of people's faith. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it will continue to shake their faith as this what's going on right now continues. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of a, it's a good reason to even just I'll say like be friendlier. But, you know, as we go about our especially maybe tradesmen or people who are interacting with other people who are kind of strangers. But it's reason to be friendly and build networks, even stuff from churches, get to know people and yeah. and provide value. And as opposed to being a lone wolf or hermit, but just, just almost a mindset of like, it makes it does. There's reasons to be friendlier and get to know my neighbors as opposed to just keep my head down and running inside. Yeah. You know, there may, there may be a network just kind of sitting out there just waiting for you to just like kind of join or volunteer yourself. You know, it's very true. And it's not just, you don't have to just do this in person anymore. Uh, yeah. I found on social media that there is a lot of people uh, who are interested in mm. prepping. Uh, and I've actually developed a uh, network of people over the last couple of years um, in several areas around the United States. Oh, um, really? Who are interested in this. And I'm actually going to visit one at the end of this trip here to Oregon as I'm on my way back to Alaska. Someone I just met oh, online wow. who's interested in the same things. We've had long conversations about it, you know, and we're going to meet up for the first wow. time. Um, you know, and that and that's the kind of thing where, um, especially as I was saying, if you need to get out of where you live, yeah. right? Oh, oh um, good. There we go. Yeah. You know, uh, because you live in a city and things are going poorly. Yeah. You know, having somebody that lives a state or two away, mm -hmm. you know, and be like, Hey, listen, can I just come crash at your yeah. place? Yeah. Here's what I'm bringing. Yeah. Here's what I offer. Not coming empty handed, not coming empty handed. Yep. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I would, I would never say that that's a good policy or no. to think that you could do that. Um, yeah. and not only that to, uh, to set these things up beforehand, I have a really good friend who lives in Oklahoma. And when I, uh, moved back to Alaska, um, my wife's in the military and we move around a lot. Um, this last time when I moved back to Alaska, uh, I contacted him and I said, Hey, listen, you know, uh, we live in a big earthquake area and there's lots of volcanoes and, you know, might be some tsunamis. I don't know. I'm like, if this place gets wrecked, can I come and stay with you and bring my family, mm -hmm. you know, to Oklahoma, mm -hmm. um, for however long it takes us to rebuild? He was like, sure, absolutely. See. Um, you know, and those are the kind of things that you want to get set up. Mm. before something that's happens. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of thing a lone wolf can't comprehend, cannot make himself invest in that ahead of time, and wouldn't he wouldn't bring anything worthwhile because he shows up as a lone wolf, right. you know? And that, you know, isn't that interesting? That wolves in nature thrive as a pack. Yeah. Lone wolves become prey, Yep. right? Mm. Exactly. That's how it works in nature. And so it, it's kind of a false... Uh, metaphor mm -hmm. really at least it's not found in nature very much what about it, like eagle they're like free eagles <laughs> yeah but an eagle can fly man <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah you're right so it's better a lone eagle, lone eagle. Yeah. yeah um i can't help but feel like one of the most valuable things you can do to be prepared is just save money and have money in the bank because so many of these problems especially when you're in the city you know and by money it also means like cash it's just so dense and mm -hmm. versatile and uh Man, that that really is like a valuable preparation item. Just saving your money, living beneath your means, oh, having yeah. a little reserve. Because all of these different types of uh, 
issue disasters but even like unemployment injury yeah well who knows what Pandemic. like having extra money can soften and assist life blows yeah in so many ways that, that just seems like the ultimate like and, not- and for a lot of people that is that just sounds so out of their reach and maybe it is so you substitute these other things but you keep that in mind mm-hmm. you keep that in mind the whole thing about living below that threshold you know mm-hmm. so that you can squirrel away something maybe food first you got to have some food i mean a 72 hour kit is a valuable thing when you need a 72 hour kit yep. right and then beyond that whatever you can put together you know financial preparedness uh is something i talk a lot about um and it it's very complicated though yeah um people you know depending on the means that you have uh you know, you can either do things faster or slower. Um, you know, some people say, just like you're talking about, that you know, I where do I find it, right? Where do I find it to put it away, um, or to spend it to buy the things that you're saying I need, right? Yeah. You know, if I'm worried about the power going out, and I need a generator. Where do where I, do I find thousand dollars to buy one? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, and and I say, you know, there's, uh, I I believe that there's always the possibility of making more money. Um, you just have to put yourself in situations that you're uncomfortable with. Right. Mm. Um, and I don't mean doing illegal things. Uh, right. Right. But I mean, uh, looking for ways that are available to you that are going to be work. Um, you know, and you know, I, you know, I'd look at, uh, lots of immigrants here to the United States and, you know, a guy comes here from the Philippines or wherever with his family and he works as, you know, in whatever industry, uh, barely speaks English and puts all five of his kids through medical school. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I just think, man, you yeah, know, like yeah. that, that's the kind of work ethic that everybody should have. Um, but if you want to get to the point where you're not super worried about stuff, that's the kind of work ethic you need to have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll get a lot of, uh, a lot of flack for this because people have sure. very strong opinions about finances. Um, sure. Like what, in what way you mean? Like people, it seems so uh, common sense to like save money. And what, 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 and what, what way are people like having conflict over this? You know, I, I think it's not so much that people have like uh, cognitive conflict over mm-hmm. the need to save money. It's that if you tell them they need to do it, but they don't have the discipline to do it, then they feel personally attacked. Oh, oh, that um, makes sense. People yeah. just feel yeah. like the, if like they're being personally attacked for yeah. not and, right, working two jobs or something. And, yeah. yeah, and because okay. part of a work ethic that'll allow you to work two jobs is the ability to withstand pain. Right. And welcome, because work is pain. The fact is, work is discomfort. Mm-hmm. Discomfort is pain, and there's different levels, right? And nobody likes pain. But it's one of the things that my, my, our friend and mentor, Sai Swan, said that his dad taught him you got to learn to embrace pain. Well, Sai <laughs> took that in a direction where he now has had 16 major reconstructive surgeries in his life. Yeah. Okay, but doggone it. <laughs> doggone it. You know, he learned that lesson in those ways, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's that's what that's what the ability to work much harder than you would ever choose to work and, in fact, harder than you think you can work, that's what it boils down to is the ability to absorb and deal with pain for a perceived benefit mm-hmm. that a lot of people get angry when, when you make them think they should do that. Well, the... You have to build resilience. Yes. Right. Yeah. And the only way you get better at doing hard things is by doing hard things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that um, don't kill you. That don't kill Nietzsche's you. Nietzsche's thing. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and that I I think to some degree I have had a 
uh, a, a jump on that in my life, having gone to the military academy and been in the army, uh-huh. where the entire purpose of that four years when I was at the academy was to push me harder and harder and harder and harder to show me that wherever you think your level's at, it's actually further. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and they force you to do that. Yeah. Um, and it just gets, you know, and, and they, they do it in a way that's, um, you know, builds on itself. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they don't throw you out of a helicopter on day one. Right. You know, but by my fourth year, you know, I'm repelling out of helicopters. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's if if you told me on day one, hey, you know, you're eventually going to be 100 feet in the air and you're going to slide down these ropes while this thing's hovering above you. Right. right? Uh, I would have said you're crazy. You had been with, with the yeah. 100 that left. Yeah. Right? yeah. You're like, you're crazy. Right. I hate heights. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, well, guess what? You're going to learn to hate them less. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and, 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 and pushing through that. And, and eventually that resilience is that you just don't feel the kind of pain and fear that you typically feel when you're confronted with a situation that seems daunting. Mm-hmm. And that's the best preparation there is. Right. There's no preparation as versatile as that, mm-hmm. as universally needed. And I, and, I, and I talk to a lot of people about that exact thing that, you know, a lot of people think prepping is, oh, I buy a lot of gear and, you know, I put a lot of food in buckets and I get some water filters and maybe a generator mm. and everything's just going to be fine no matter what happens. Mm. And I tell them that that is not this. Mm. Uh, like you got to use your gear. The first time you use your gear should not be when it matters, mm-hmm. right? It should be <laughs> when you're out in your backyard and you want to see how this thing works, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that when you got to make it work, you know how you're doing it. Automatic. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you do you do like training or putting, I know you have content on Twitter, but what to what extent are you involved with prepping and maybe just as a hobby still, but outside of just keeping your own family, uh, you know, well prepared? Well, I'm in a doctoral program right now. Uh, which sucks up all my time. Yeah, I, would, <laughs> right? I hope so. Um, yeah, uh, they they demand quite a bit. Um, and so I'm trying to juggle a lot of things right now. Uh, I'd like to get to do more stuff yeah. uh, in the prepping area uh, to help more people. Uh, like you said, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I have a presence there. I have people uh, direct message me all the time asking oh. for advice. What are uh, some of the like most common questions and what's some of the most like, you know, low-hanging fruit things you're telling these people um because like you said it's very specific and i could imagine it being kind of like i don't know anything about your life where you are the is it is it exactly is it more generic like that or are there things that like look if nothing else xyz you know <laughs> well i i always ask them first off hey like where do you live like uh-huh. do you live in an urban area a suburban area do you live in the country um you know what and then i asked i walked through them this the risk assessment that yeah. i talked about right that okay what do you think the biggest risks to you are because yeah. you know your area yeah right? do you that's get, really do you get hurricanes yeah. do you get wind storms do you get right. ice storms do you get uh earthquakes do you get tornadoes do you you know do you think the government's going to like enslave everybody like like where's your mind on this yeah right because or maybe even your job. Like, are you about to get outsourced out of a job like in, yeah. from AI in three years? That's or an emergency, You too. have no skills besides this one software you're a master at? Right. Those those kind of questions. Yeah. Um, because uh, you you know you better than anything, right? And I, I can't just give you a cookie cutter, you know, sheet that says, do this, do this, do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to you know, get to know them enough that I can give them good advice. It's one thing having a career and having savings, but it's also really hard to, when I think about investing and like what to do with the money that my family does have, 
that's like that's kind of along these same lines and it's really scary to get into a market like ours that feels like it's house of cards it's also really risky to not be in it because like even over the last three years it's just you know if you stay on the sidelines you you're man it's like you almost feels almost like you can't win so do you have any like resources or ideas or anything for people thinking about finances in that way because it's it's not unrelated you know prepping for when i'm 65 and wanting to work less is still preparation so what i feel you're asking me is to predict the future yeah Um, (laughs) how's your crystal ball yeah yeah Uh uh well i gotta tell you that um you could ask a thousand people this question and you'll get a thousand two thousand different answers right that's what i'm doing kind of thing right um so yeah so i'll just tell you my personal philosophy yeah i'll tell you what i think i want to know i ask a lot of people this and what are you doing about this and so what are you doing so here's my personal philosophy on this um i believe that the united states is entering a time of uh economic upheaval and the reason i believe this is because the federal reserve continues to print currency nonstop, and they've entered a time now because they have printed so much and there's so much liquidity out there and the markets are so addicted to it um that they cannot stop yeah it sounds like they're gonna stop here soon right they're talking about stopping if you're listening to them um and we've already seen markets are going down just on talk yeah so what's going to happen if they actually do it um and you know you can look up all this stuff about uh inflation about zombie companies addicted to this easy money Mm. um and how this is going to just have decades-long ramifications um, to the way we live our lives um, if the kind of depression hits that this is a portent of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I like to read a lot of history. Um, I liken this time to early 1920s Germany. Um, there is a lot of parallels mm. between what's happening right now and what happened right prior to the hyperinflation uh, that occurred in 1920s Germany. Mm. And, uh, and what happens is if that does occur, then we can look to see kind of the same thing happening in mid 1920s Germany, which was a very, very bad time for that country. Yeah. Um, and some crackpot taking advantage. Exactly. Um, crackpot is generous, obviously, for yeah. Hitler. But there, there, the idea. The, there are many historians that believe that if the hyperinflation did not occur, occur after World War I, uh, the seeds would not have been sown for the fascists to take over. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so... You know, you gotta you gotta look at it in that that way. Uh, I'm a believer that we already see that inflation's going up. You know, based upon even the government's numbers, which I think are played with convenient. Yeah, <laughs> convenient. Um, and so, uh, I I think that it's it's time to become fairly defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, that the things that have historically showed to retain value in that kind of environment are the things that I would want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm personally in uh, precious metals, productive land, um, you know, businesses that will make money regardless of what's going on, things that people will always need. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally do uh, commercial fishing, right? Mm. People are always going to need to eat. doesn't matter what the money's worth, right? Um, construction's great. People are going to need a place to live. Yeah. No matter what the money's worth. Yeah, got to fix their um, toilet, you yeah, know, no matter right? what. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> the the big problems that I see going forward is the things that do well in a um, kind of the risk-on environment that we've seen for the last 20 years or so, right? Mm-hmm. The Facebooks and the Teslas and all of these things that just have these insane valuations. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, those don't do so hot when uh, inflation really gets rolling. Now, don't get me wrong. When inflation gets going, the stock market's going to go up because mm-hmm. that money's going to flow into it. But what happens is, is does it go up enough to offset the devaluation of the currency? Yeah. And every time it does not. Um, you cannot have the market go up fast enough to keep the devaluation of the currency from yeah. So it's always behind it. that. It's always behind it, hmm. um, especially as the devaluation accelerates. Um, you know, so uh, that's that's what I do. Yeah, um, I think sense. I think building a business that people will always need, great choice. Yeah. Uh, gaining skills that are always going to be in demand. Um, Great choice. Yeah, um, that's a good that's a good call. You know, people people think that oh, you know, what am I going to do with my money? Uh, well, take some of your money and pay somebody to teach you how to yeah. do something that's always going to be needed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, buy a tool that will always be yeah a tool useful. a good yeah. example because silver is great and valuable. So is a chainsaw. Exactly. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. have maybe have some of all these things. Also have a chainsaw because yeah. that's also yeah. very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Have a chainsaw. Learn how to cut wood. Right. Yeah. People are always going to need to heat their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and as energy prices increase with inflation, uh, it's going to become more and more economical to burn wood. Alternative. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those kind of things. Um, one thing that I felt, and maybe we can wrap on this, is about having a prepping a preparedness mindset. And I've like gone down this myself where I, I kind of realize that I'm like living in this fantasy world of apocalypse and how's my guns and don't, are my red dots good enough for the guns? And and I get to this point where I'm, then I'll even kind of snap out and be like, what am I, what the heck? And, and then I, I, encircling all the way around, I realize people also like dress up as Spider-Man and go to costume and comic cons. And point is, yeah, it, it's not the worst thing in the world to pretend. And even if th- it's like that is a part of why it's fun to be prepared. Yeah, guess what? It is also a little bit fun to to pretend. And in, at least it's you're not just drep- dressing up as anime or Spider-Man or something. So <laughs> if those if there's someone having this thought about this conversation, well, at least we're not dressing up as yeah. uh, as comic book peoples. Yeah. And it's definitely, as we've seen, at least just last March, uh, for some people, and if you were in Dallas or Houston or the Snowmageddon here, and probably a million other micro events that happen locally that yeah. we don't know about, yeah. um, you folks know that it's not all play, right? Right. And and I, I've... Having been prepping for a long time, I've gotten a lot of flack from people, uh, even family members. Not my dad, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> uh, from other family members. And, um, you know, when I bring buckets of rice, you know, out to my cabin and I say, you mm-hmm. know, I just want to make sure we got enough food here. And they're mm-hmm. like, why do you need all that rice? And I say, well, you never know. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like an insurance policy. Yeah. This is what I tell them. It's like an insurance policy. If I live my entire life and I never have to open that bucket of rice, I will be thankful. That's yeah. Right. And if I live my life and I have to open that bucket of rice, I will be, I will thankful. be thankful. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that's how I look at yeah. it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I win either way. Yeah. 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 It's a variation. It's Pascal's wager, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a variation on that. I mean, you dress up for a dance, but if the dance never happens, well... Yeah. It was nice to be dressed up. Mm-hmm. But if the dance happens, doggone it. 
you know, I am going to be welcome at the dance and I'll be able to participate. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, now I know that's not Pascal's wager, yeah. but it's a variation on a theme. But there's definitely ways, and this is probably where you were, the level you're at, where you're simultaneously being prepared and living your life. In other words, yes. I'm guessing you have rice that you also eat and cycle oh, yeah. and work through. I like rice. I'm guessing you have a chainsaw that you're going to use and also you use it regularly. So it's not just like all prep. It's, it's a little bit like some good habits mm -hmm. and some if we're going to store food, let's at least, you know, store it in this way because then X, Y, Z, right? Oh, absolutely. I actually own three chainsaws. See, uh, I really a, like that's them. exactly half enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll buy another one. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's we uh, that that's actually a great point because especially with storing food, you got to store food you like. Yeah, yeah right? that you can eat that you can eat. You know, don't I. I asked, I have, here's actually you're asking me about questions that I typically get from people. Okay. A lot of, uh, one, one of these questions is, Hey, should I go online and buy one of those, uh, you know, bundles of food, right? The year's yeah. supply, you know, for like $8,000, you know, and get on these websites. Yeah. Right. And I say, no, don't do that. Yeah. You have no idea if you like that food and you're just about to buy years full of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, yeah. you need to buy food that you like, that you're going to want to eat. Right. If you don't like rice, don't put rice in buckets, right? Mm -hmm. Go find something that'll store that you like to eat, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, there's going to be nothing worse than trying to sit out some disaster eating food you hate, right? Yeah. Um, well, there is one know. thing worse. Well, not eating food you hate. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty close, right? <laughs> <laughs> one's quick torture and one's uh, one's slow torture. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I I think that we, uh, you know, if you if you're prepared, um, you know, you can you can rest easy. Yeah, you'll not right? fear. You'll you'll not fear because uh, you know when I had a uh, oh when that earthquake happened in Anchorage that's seven point one three years ago, um, whereas a lot of people you know were very anxious about what was happening, you know I went home you know had a drink mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. I was like we're ready yeah. right yeah. the power could go out the heat could go out there could be no food here for a month all of this mm -hmm. right. The dance has started. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm ready to go. And not only that, here's the other thing I want to touch on. I was ready to help my neighbors. There you go. Right. Um, you know, after I went home and made sure that my gas line hadn't cracked. Right. And that the, uh, the water wasn't spilling out of my ceiling. Yeah. Um, you know, no, there were no windows broken or anything like that. Uh, I started going around to my neighbors. That's awesome. You know, and asking them, Hey, are you okay? Like, have you checked your gas line? <laughs> Number one, mm -hmm. um, you know, is anything happened? Is anything broken? Do you need help with anything? Um, and luckily, we construct things in the United States in earthquake zones well enough that pretty good. Uh, there was actually only one major injury during that earthquake in all of Anchorage. Wow. Um, during during the big one, you said? During that big one, that 7.1. Wow. There was one injury, uh, I believe, it was on the news, um, I think a woman was uh, standing in front of her windows or something uh, like that, it and it, it shattered, and she got some severe lacerations, had to go to the hospital. Huh. Uh, everything else was super minor, nobody died. And there was no um, tsunami. And there was no tsunami. Yeah. So one thing that was is nice about Cook Inlet is the way that it's shaped and its depth and so forth, even during the giant earthquake in 64, there was no tsunami in Cook wow. Inlet. Uh, you'd have to make like four right-hand turns to get oh, to Anchorage. And it just dampened it. Dampened yeah, it. you know. Yeah. Um, and so there's no tsunami there. And um, yeah. And so every, everybody was fine. I helped them out, people who needed help. And, uh, and I think that's also a big part of prepping is not only that you're ready to go, yeah. but that you can help other people, right? Because, you know, other people are going to need help. 
feels really good to help people when they're, especially when they really need it. Help, good, no, good no matter what, but man, when there's somebody who's like really needing help, that is, that's the best when you it can actually the help feeling. them. It truly is just the best. Yeah. It's the best yeah. All right, Jake. Well, hey, thanks for coming on. We'll link to your Twitter. Any, any last prepping words for, uh, the listeners who made it to the end of this <laughs> just just get ready you never know what the future holds it's only the diehards with us now so <laughs> they're probably Congratulations, uh, guys. they're probably already they're probably already set all right well thanks for listening everybody and uh, we'll catch you next time